right, good morning once again. <clears throat> I want to welcome in our family, um, really joining us in from all around the world uh, online. We are, we are so grateful and blessed by you uh, being with us today. Um, I want to take, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 11 this morning. If you've been with us for a while, we have been going verse by verse through this uh, incredible gospel of John, and we are now approaching the end of this chapter. In fact, in fact today we will finish it, Lord willing. Um, so what I want to do today is begin by uh, reading the passage um, once all the way through, and then we can walk through each section of it um, together. So John chapter 11, we'll be covering verses 45 through the end of the chapter today, but I want to begin... Um, Start reading in verse 43, which we uh, looked at last week, but just to see this immediate context. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 43, this is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. When he, Jesus, had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said what are we doing for this man performs many signs go on like this everyone will believe in him and the romans will come and take away both our place and our nation but one of them verse 49 caiaphas who was the high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. As we come to the end of chapter 11, the attention now shifts to the various responses of Jesus' raising Lazarus 
and has spread to in and around Jerusalem. And out of this emerges one of the most astounding pieces of unwitting prophecy the world has ever known, namely that Jesus would die not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God. And in this way, the Apostle John links the resurrection and atonement and gives a, a theological framework that paves the way for his account of the death and resurrection of Jesus as Savior for all who would believe in him. With these words, we have reached a turning point in the Gospel of John. Here is the official decision by the highest Jewish uh, judicial body in the land, the Sanhedrin, to put to death the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, in reality, the real trial of Jesus. When we come to John chapter 18 and, and the trial of Jesus, that will be uh, a mere formality. This is where the deed was cut. This is where the, the backroom handshakes were made. This is where the Pharisees allied themselves with the chief priests as they all came together and decided behind closed doors that Jesus will be crucified. And so as we look at this, this is dark and this is devilish. Um, now before this point, the opposition that we have seen starting in chapter 5 from the Pharisees um, was not altogether organized. Uh, we've seen these little different pockets, individual small groups of Pharisees. Here, there is a different situation as they are gathering together, meet with the council and rise up against Jesus. The confederation has been made. The conspiracy has been consolidated and galvanized. There is no turning back at this point. The plan has been made to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at these verses together, we need to keep in mind that no matter how organized they are in this conspiracy, it's really just a part of the master plan orchestrated by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Jesus was to be the lamb to be slain before time began. And what we see playing out here under human responsibility is in reality the fulfillment of the divine sovereign hand of God. And so as we see this, it's like what Charles Dickens says. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the worst in times in that the greatest crime in the history of the world the first degree premeditated murder of the Lord Jesus Christ is taking place. And yet at the same time, this was God's plan. This was God's plan. And while God is not the author of evil, God is the author of a plan and he has chosen to include these men's evil. And what they mean for evil, God means for good. And it is through the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be made righteous to God. 
God is superintending this entire scene. So as we walk through these verses together, there's a couple things we notice. I broke them down to, into six little sections you'll see there in your bulletin. And the first thing that we notice is the division that Jesus caused. The division. Jesus is very divisive and he always separates. And this is no exception. Uh, you'll recall in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against the son, and, and son against the father, a mother against a daughter, and a daughter against her mother. And this becomes the principal point here as the unbelieving see the very same miracle as those who believe and yet this group responds completely differently and i want you to notice this beginning in verse 45 we read many of the jews therefore who had come with mary and had seen what he did what jesus did believed in him so as we've seen this um, story playing out um, mary has maybe hundreds of close family friends relatives um, who have come from all over to, to comfort her as she's grieving the loss of her brother Lazarus. They're mentioned in verses 31 and 33. And having seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says many of them be believed in him. Good news. So when they saw the miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ raise Lazarus, a man dead four days buried in the tomb, they witness firsthand the manifestation of the glory of God and affirm for them that this was in fact the Son of God, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that this was the Savior of the world. And immediately they responded with saving faith because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and they committed their lives to him right here. And notice the two words there at the end of verse 45. They believed in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the sole object of their faith. And in this moment, they trusted and believed in him for their salvation. They went from the kingdom of darkness and they entered into the kingdom of the Son, Lord Jesus Christ. But as we continue to read in verse 46, we start to see a glaring contrast. But some of them, meaning some of those who saw the, the very same miracle as these others did, some of them who had just witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, who saw him walking out of the tomb, still wrapped and covered in grave clothes, some, some of them were also friends and family of Mary, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Wow. So this group of people uh, 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 apparently responded in, in a completely different way than those who believed instead of responding in faith some of them go to the pharisees a betrayal of the lord 
Jesus Christ. Now, um, one might charitably hope that the motive of at least some of them was to win the Pharisees to the truth. But the contrast set up between those who believe and those who go to the Pharisees suggests that their intent was much more malicious. Their hearts, rather than being softened, have become hardened by this miracle. They go running into the arms of their beloved religious leaders instead of falling, as we just sang, at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is pretty shocking. And I don't want to just pass by this too quickly. I want to just kind of pull over and park here for a moment. That these people here in verse 46, having seen the same miracle as those in 45, have such the opposite reaction. And I think there are many of us here today who can relate to this. Many of you here today grew up in the same house, with the same parents, had the same exposure to Christ, grew up going to the same church, and yet you have siblings who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us here today as parents have children who grew up under the same influence, who grew up in the, the same household, who came to the same church to hear the very same message, and yet some of your children believe, and some of them do not believe. It is a heartbreaking reality we deal with, and is exactly what we see here of Mary's family. That they could see the actual raising, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and some would believe, and others would not believe. Jesus tells a story in Luke 16 about a rich man who died. And he's in a place of Hades, the realm of the dead, a place of torments. And he's begging Father Abraham to send a messenger to his family to, to warn his five brothers not to come to this awful place of torments. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus tells this sh story, foreshadowing in many ways his own resurrection. And still the unbelief that followed, and we see it here in the raising of Lazarus. For some, even if they were to witness a man being raised from the dead, it still will not be enough to convince them to, to repent and, and put their faith and trust into the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think it was Spurgeon who said that the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And so I want to encourage some of you who have unbelieving parents, who have unbelieving siblings, to have, who have unbelieving children, 
they did not believe even when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And so it is not always that you did something wrong. Sadly, it may simply be the wickedness and the depravity of the person's own heart not to believe. But in the meantime, we continue praying for our loved ones, don't we? My parents and friends prayed for 25 years. 25 years. So you keep praying. You you keep putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to do his part. And you continue being the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus and be involved as much as they allow you in their lives. Let them see Christ in you and through you. So uh, we see first this division that Jesus caused. And he, he always separates the wheat from the chaff, the, the sheep from the goats. He, he always separates those among us. I want you to notice, number two, the problem. The Pharisees, the Pharisees view Jesus as the problem. And this problem needed to be dealt with immediately. And alarmed by the news of the most astonishing miracle yet performed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and understanding the effect that would have on the people, the Pharisees uh, immediately uh, swung into action. There, There was no time to waste. So beginning in verse 47, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now, the the chief priests were the leaders among the Pharisees. Um, The Pharisees didn't have the kind of authority to to act this out onto their own. So they informed their Sadducees, the Sadducees, uh, who were essentially the majority of the party and controlled the the Sanhedrin. Um, Virtually all all priests were Sadducees. Um, so, uh, So along with some of the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered the the full council together and they go into an emergency session to deal with with the problem of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interesting enough, this word council in the the original Greek simply means Sanhedrin. (laughs) That's where the word actually comes from here. So the Sanhedrin just means a council and it was a council of, of 70 men. And it was dominated by um, chief, uh, chief priests, mainly priests, um, drawn from the extended family of, of the high priest, who, of course, headed the, the whole thing. And they served really as what we would say today, combining the, the U.S. Senate, the Supreme Court, and the House of Representatives, all, all into one body. It's a little bit like how our government functions these days. It was the the legislative branch, the judicial branch, as well as the religious branch, all all put together into one, and that was the Sanhedrin. And so they were really the power brokers in Israel. Now, um, the the Roman Empire, of course, they have taken over control of Palestine, of Judea, but but Rome was smart enough to to let the Jews continue to carry out their own internal affairs. but they were under the dominion of Rome, no doubt. And so it's the Sanhedrin who are the power brokers. And, and, and they have the power to do basically everything except execute capital punishment. That is why they will have to involve the Romans later in John chapter 18 and 19 in order to have Jesus put to death. 
All they can do is deliver up Jesus to the Romans and say, he's a blasphemer, put him to death. He's no friend of Caesar's. So that's what's going on kind of behind the scenes. So they've gathered together, this council together. There was only one item on the meeting's agenda here. And we read it in the middle of verse 47. They said, what are we doing? In other words, what are we going to do about this? Why are we allowing this, this to play out, this man? And it's all about power. And it's all about control, um, being in control of the populace. And they have used their man-made religion as a yoke. And, and they have put it onto the, the necks of the people. Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, you tie up heavy burdens and, and lay them on men's shoulders. And the Lord Jesus Christ will not stand for any of this. So he has been constantly and publicly confronting these religious hypocrites. And he has exposed them for who they truly are. He called them blind guides and whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. And as Jesus continues preaching the gospel and healing the sick and talking nonstop about the kingdom of God which was in their midst, one soul at a time, men and women were being delivered. And everyone's asking the same question. Could this be the one? Could Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah? So that's why they said in verse 47, what are we doing? We've got to stop this. For this man performs many signs. And there's a note of derision about this. They, they won't even say the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just this man. How, how can this man be taking over our turf? So in verse 48, they continue. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> of course, this is hyperbolic, but it expresses their fears. We don't want people leaving us and believing in him and following him. We'll be left with no one to manipulate, and no one to control, uh, no one to fleece out of their resources. But on top of that, notice what else they say. And the Romans will come and take both our place, that's referring to the temple, and, and of course their prized positions within the temple, and our nation. Talk about the doomsday scenario here, right? This will be the end of everything. <laughs> we, we, we can't allow this to go on. We've got to act now or, or we're going to lose everything. So this is an idea fabricated as a pretense in order to make them feel better about killing the Lord Jesus Christ. His teaching really tore at the fabric of the religious system, didn't it? So as long as we can manipulate peace and order them, we're in control, the religious leaders would say. But if there's a, a revolt or if, the, if there's some kind of a movement to follow this man, uh, the Romans will come and, and they'll put their heel onto our necks and, and they'll take us all out. Now, if you want to know how cults work, any sort of false religions, 
this is how they operate. Here are some pretty good insights. In order to control the people, you must insert fear into people. <laughs> and they'll do anything they can to keep their dominance over them. That's the way cults work. You, you, you can get in, you can just never get out. <laughs> so that was the problem. If, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. So what they do? How does this council end? Well, that leads us to number three and the proposed solution. They're going to put their minds together and figure this thing out. And in verses 49 to 52, this is really one of the most remarkable discourses to be recorded in all of Scripture, I think. Um, and so you're going to want to pay attention to the insight the Holy Spirit brings to us here. It says uh, in verse 49, uh, but one of them, one of them, meaning one of the Sanhedrin uh, members, Caiaphas. Caiaphas is a, a slick politician. <laughs> he, he's a manipulative man. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, um, he served as the high priest for 18 years, from the year 18 to the year 36 A.D., Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and, and that year, I think, of all years, is what John is intending to emphasize here. He was there that year. Said to them, to the rest of the Sanhedrin members, you know nothing at all. <laughs> a modern-day equivalent to this response would be something to the effect of, give me a break. What are you, a bunch of amateurs? <laughs> Uh, this is what we're going to do about this man. Let me tell you. you. You know nothing at all. It's really quite a rebuke as Caiaphas reprimands his own counsel. He continues in verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you. Notice what, what's important. That it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Referring here to the Jews and that the whole nation not perish. Now, what Caiaphas is saying here with devilish brilliance is that the death of Jesus would mean the salvation of their nation. Now, he had no idea what he was saying, and John will tell us that, but, but what Caiaphas is saying is either Jesus dies or the whole nation dies. Okay, again, this is the doomsday scenario. It's, it's one or the other. It's one of the two. <laughs> Either we put Jesus to death, and that will spare the rest of the nation, or if we spare Jesus, then the Romans will come, and they'll wipe us all out. <laughs> so that's Caiaphas' reasoning. You don't understand. It is better for you that one man die instead of a whole nation. Jesus will become Caiaphas' scapegoat. Now in verses 51 and 52, John gives us some really vital commentary as he shows us how God is working in all of this. this these are incredible verses. Notice what John says as he really peels back the divine curtain of God and we get to, we get to peek into the workings. He writes in verse 51, he, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. Boy, 
So here we see the invisible hand of God, uh, a sovereign God, intervening at this point. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So you see the words Caiaphas spoke become prophetic. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now what makes it so fascinating is Caiaphas didn't say these words on his own initiative. It was God who directed the purpose of these words. But Caiaphas also wasn't a puppet. God didn't turn him into a robot or, or turn him into that donkey like we see in, in the book of Numbers, though there are some similarities there. No, Caiaphas had one meaning, God had another. And I think there's something for us to certainly learn here by way of application, that God can work even through evil rulers to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God doesn't have to have a born-again believer in the White House or a born-again believer in Israel for God to speak through and to use them as he wills. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he channels it wherever he wishes. We read in the book of Ezra and in Isaiah how God used Cyrus. In fact, Cyrus, who was a Persian king, did not worship the one true God of Israel and is portrayed in Scripture as an instrument of God. In fact, God calls him my servant. Wait a minute, he's a retrobate. What do you mean my servant? Isaiah 45 says he doesn't know the Lord. Yet God used him to release the children of God back to Jerusalem, out of Babylon captivity. Did God not also say, I raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart for this very purpose, to be used by the sovereign God, to release the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage? Romans 9 verse 17 said, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so we need to have a much bigger view of God than what we sometimes have. We can, we can sometimes limit God or, or put him in a box that he does not belong in and have the understanding that God can work through even evil men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And that's exactly what is happening here. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He was used by God as if he was a prophet to carry out the eternal plans that God has. Listen, these wires being intersected here are far above our, our, our pay grade. <laughs> if God want, was to pull back the veil completely and we were to see fully what God would be doing, we wouldn't even be able to take it in. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. <laughs> God has this whole thing working according to his plan. The whole thing. The whole thing. And so even this depraved high priest is being used as a prophet to speak what God wants to be said at this very moment. 
God never has to have the circumstances just right in order to work. No, God delights in working in the worst circumstances to bring about the greatest good. And that's exactly what's on the table here. So at the end of verse 57, John explains that by the words of Caiaphas, the higher meaning. He's going to explain to us the ultimate meaning, the true meaning of the words that Caiaphas has said. Verse 51 was that Jesus would die for the nation. So not for himself, but for the nation. But it has a far greater meaning than what Caiaphas has intended or meant it to, to say. That becomes clear in verse 52. He says, and not for the nation only, for Israel only, but also, now here comes the intent to the cross. Here, here is the intent of the death of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to pay attention to this because the intent will define the extent of whom Jesus has died for. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So not just for believing Israel, believing Jews, but also, or in order that, he might also gather together into one, meaning one family, one flock, one church, one kingdom, one people, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Where are the children of God scattered, you might ask? They are scattered in all nations. At this point, some of them are in Europe. Some of them are in Asia Minor. Some of them are in Africa. Some of them are across the Middle East. And the gospel will go forward as the church will expand. These children of God scattered abroad will be found throughout the entire world and they are those who will be born again past present and future jesus would die for all the children of god in every place in every century in every generation now what john is explaining here jesus has already taught us turn back to john chapter 10 just that one page i don't have to turn turn my bible john chapter 10 i want you just to see this again starting in verse 15 i just want to look at just a few verses because jesus has already taught this and and it's such a wonderful section of scripture as jesus described himself as the good shepherd it is in john chapter 10 verse 15 at the end of the verse there that jesus said i lay down my life for the sheep now, now the sheep here here in 15 refers to all the elect jews okay they are to be differentiated from those who are in verse 26 peek down at verse 26 where jesus says but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me so not everyone who lives is one of the lord's sheep it represents those who have been chosen by God and the Father in love before the foundation of the world. So look back there at verse 15 again. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. This is very intentional. This is very focused. The sheep is not for the goats. It's for the sheep that Jesus will lay down his life. So that refers to the elect Jews at the end of verse 15. Now look at verse 16. This is what the good shepherd says. And I have other sheep. Wow. 
this is now referring to us, the Gentiles, everyone else, the other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, now please note the result of this, because there's a cause and effect here. Jesus says, I must bring them also. The, the, these are words of divine necessity. The, those for whom Jesus laid down his life, Jesus said, I must bring them to myself. I must bring them also. And then notice what he says next. And they will, and they will hear my voice. A, a statement of, of necessity. All that Jesus dies for, he must bring. They will hear his voice, which is the effectual call of God. It, it is the sovereign, irresistible call of God. I must bring, they will hear, and Jesus will lay down his life for these sheep, and they must come, and they will come because he will call them to himself, and they will hear his voice. And Notice there at the end of verse 16, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. They will be made into one, the people of God. There will not be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's only going to be one flock, both Jew and Gentile, those for whom Jesus died upon the cross. And this is the truth of, of, of definite atonement, and it is the truth that all for whom Jesus died will be saved. They will be saved. It's not a question of I hope, or maybe, or this random group of people that no one knows about. All for whom Jesus died must come to him by faith. They must come to him. They will come to him. They will here and they will come to him by faith none of whom jesus died will ever perish none of whom that jesus died for will ever perish because he is the good shepherd he is the good shepherd a shepherd who loses his flock is not a good shepherd a, a good shepherd is one who protects and preserves and saves all that the father has given to him and it is these that Jesus said he lays down his life. Jesus did not lay down his life for an unknown group of people. He laid down his life for his sheep. His sheep. And if you're one of his sheep, your name was written on upon his heart when he went to the cross and died for your sins. He bore your sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. So let's go back to uh, chapter 11 in, in the fourth section um, of this text. As we see now the plan. The plan is about to go into effect. Verse 53 it says. So from that day on. Th th this marks a turning point. From that day on. Uh, th this is a hinge. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. With the, the, the high priest's malicious proposal to execute Jesus, met with the Sanhedrin's approval, 
they have planned together, they have plotted out how it is that they will kill the Lord Jesus Christ. This word planned is a very strong word and it means to to take counsel together, but it means more to resolve, to pursue a course of action. Their targets are locked in, their guns are loaded, they have their assignment. They did more than just plan it. They were now determined to carry this despicable deed out to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And in reality, just to give you a little bit of a footnote, that when Jesus will go through his trials, if you were to count sort of each of the encounters, it really becomes six stages um, for him. It's almost like six trials that Jesus will actually go through the night before he is crucified. There were three religious trials, and then we see that there were, we'll call them three secular trials. There were three trials before the leaders of Israel. There was Ananias, then Caiaphas, and then Jesus will be brought in before the Sanhedrin. So one, two, three there. And then they turn him over to the Romans. And there, there were three civil trials. It starts with Pilate. Pilate finds nothing wrong. Jesus is brought then to Herod, and then goes back to Pilate. All right? But when we read about them, they really didn't try him there. <laughs> All right? They just simply carried out the decision that was made right here. The, the, the plan has been plot. The deal is done. This is the real trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we reach John chapter 18, it is, it'll just be the execution of what they decided in John chapter 11. In short, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. Rather, he is to be tried because he has already been found guilty. That leads us to number five and the end of the Lord's public ministry. The end of the Lord's public ministry. We read in verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly. This means out in public or, or visibly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So the narrative swings back to Jesus, who still is in Bethany, but it says that he went from there, Bethany, to the region near the wilderness. Ephraim, I think we can tell, is about 12 miles away from where they were. So he, he goes out into a very remote, desolate place, but not far enough for him to get back to Jerusalem he withdraws from the public eye. Now, why does, he do, why, why does he do this? Because he is on a divine time schedule. All right? And his hour has not yet come. If you've been with us since the beginning of this, we went through one of the very first weeks of starting John through all of my hour, my hour, the hour. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. It is very close. It is very near but Jesus knows under the purview of the sovereignty of God that time has been marked out before the foundation of the world. Even when Jesus turned water into wine, he said to his mother, woman, my hour has not yet come. Uh, he understood every divine second that that hour is close, the clock is ticking, but it has not yet come. So Jesus withdraws until the appropriate time to then enter Jerusalem during the last passion week the final week of his life notice at the end of verse 54 it says and there he stayed with the disciples he, he is no doubt preparing them for for what lies around the corner 
and the final week of his life, which it will be the most extraordinary week in human history. This verse is just another big turning point in the Gospel of John as it marks the end of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he was a man among the people, right? But in his final weeks, he could no longer walk openly. He will spend his last weeks in seclusion with his disciples until his hour has come. Well, that brings us lastly to number six. This is the last section of chapter 11 that John closes with. And the Passover preparations we see as the chapter ends. It starts in verse 55 and says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Well, let's stop just there for a moment because that's going to be um, an important time marker in John's gospel. This is the third time in his gospel that we read the Passover is at hand or the Passover is near. All right, so those, those came once a year, the th three main feasts a year in Israel by which the Jews were required by law to, to come to Jerusalem. Um, for Jesus, this will be the last Passover. He will be the Passover lamb at this Passover. When Tim asked why we would be making sacrifices anymore, there are no longer sacrifices because Jesus was the last Passover. He was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. It is he who is the Lamb of God who will be sacrificed upon the altar of Calvary's cross. And we read, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This would have been thousands who, who it's always going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's up such a high level. So no matter where you are, south, north, east, west, you're always going up to Jerusalem and there would have been thousands of Jews who would have gone early in order to purify themselves with a ceremonial purification ritual to cleanse themselves of any sort of defilement so to take part in the Passover with a, with a prepared heart. But notice what follows in verse 56. It says, they, referring to Jesus' enemies, they were looking for Jesus. At this point, it's like wanted posters are up. Most wanted, the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to find Jesus, and they want to kill Jesus now. Before the thousands of people who are coming will have the opportunity to believe in him. If he performs any more miracles like this, the whole nation will turn. Imagine tens of hundreds of thousands of people. So they're frantically looking for him to put him to death before this Passover week can, can even start. So in verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Man, talk about hypocrisy. <laughs> they're in the house of God and they're plotting the death of the Son of God. <laughs> and saying to one another, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? This implies a negative answer. Surely he's not going to come to Jerusalem now, is he? Uh, surely he's not dumb enough to come to our temple, is he? Verse 57, now the chief priests and Pharisees had given order, orders that if anyone knew where he was, Jesus, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they spread the word on the streets to all of their minions to be their eyes and ears as they're going around. And if you see him, you, you, you report him immediately to us. 
and, and we're going to seize him, and, and we're going to work this in such a way as to deliver him over into Romans' hands, and it, it'll all be a foregone conclusion. He will be crucified. He will be put to death. We will do, this will be done in, in public so, so that no one else will ever believe in this man again. So, in the sovereignty of God, they are carrying out what Peter will call in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. <laughs> I think the greatest illustration example in the entire Bible of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility work hand in hand is found at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was no accident. Jesus was no victim. It was the sovereign will of the eternal God before the foundation of the world. And God worked it through evil men. He even put it in the mouth of Caiaphas what to say. It did not originate with him. He prophesied. He prophesied. God knows everything. <laughs> God knows everything. He is the alpha, the omega, the, the beginning and the end. He has every event, every moment already mapped out. And we see here how intentional that God is. And I can't help but wonder, what in the world is God doing right now? What is God doing right now in, in all of this madness, in all of this chaos, this very hour in which we live? I want you to know that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, verse 11. And in Romans 8, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And so what is that good? All to work together for good. Is that a better job? Is it better health? No, he'll take those away in a heartbeat to bring about the great good, which is to make you like Jesus Christ, to conform you to the image of his son. That's the purpose. That's the greatest good. That is what God is doing in the world right now. He's shaking things up, if you haven't noticed, in order to build up the church one soul at a time. And he does this in lots of different ways. But the enemies of God and the enemies of truth, uh, let me tell you, they can scheme and plot all that they would like the overarching reality to which they are oblivious to is said in psalms chapter 2 verse 4 read psalm chapter 2 i cut it down to one verse for our time but it speaks of god who sits in the heavens on his throne and laughs the lord scoffs at these kings and queens as they think they're ordering and putting everything into play god is upon the throne God is the administrator, the executor, and it is his own eternal decree that will go forward. And, and just as he was in control on this day, so God is working in this very hour, even through evil men, to bring about his greatest good. 
So what's your worldview? What are, what are the lenses that you're looking out through the rest of the world when you're reading your Bible and looking on outside of those doors? Are you panicked? Are you scared? Are you worried? Or do you, do you have a, a resilient faith in the sovereign and divine power of God in the midst of the storm that he is in total control? And further... God knows exactly what it is that he is doing. He knew exactly what he was doing on this day as he was moving it all forward to the greatest good that would ever happen in human history, which would be the death of his son in the hands of godless men. Even so in this hour, he, he is moving history forward to its appointed end in time. And one of these days, we are going to hear that trumpet sound we are going to hear the shouts and we are going to be caught up to meet the lord together in the air and there we will always be with him and it's going to all make total sense as you look around to what god is doing do you believe in the lord jesus christ have you come to faith in christ He's come into this world to die so that sinners may be saved. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there are none that are righteous, not even one. We all need to be saved. The question is, is who's saving you? Is it yourself? Do you think that your good deeds are going to save you? I hope not, because a few verses later, the the Bible says in, in Romans 3, there is none who does good, There is not even one. There is one Savior, one Redeemer, one Lord, and one Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in Him, and how could you possibly go on any longer without believing in Jesus Christ? If He calls you today, if He calls you to Himself, will you have ears to hear? He says that you will, and I pray that you do. At this time, I want to invite the leaders to come forward this morning. They'll be down front here if any of you need um, prayers or, or if God has spoken to your heart today. Please stand as we sing the song of invitation this morning. It's a great one. King of kings.